We are in 2 Samuel chapter 17 today, so go ahead and turn there. And if you don't have a Bible, you need a Bible, just put your hand up in the air and keep it up, and a Bible will be delivered to you. If you do not own a Bible, then please keep that one as a gift from the Lord to you. Well, I'm excited as we jump into God's Word today. Yeah, keep those hands up for Bibles. Um, Today's message is entitled, Good Advice, Bad Advice, and Hardship. We've been studying verse by verse through the book of 2 Samuel, and at this point in our story, King David has been run out of his own kingdom. His son Absalom has stolen the hearts of the people. Absalom, he planted spies throughout all Israel, and on his command, he blew the trumpet and he had all the spies proclaim that Absalom is now king. And so when David hears of it, he knew that he was in danger, and so he fled. David once again finds himself in the wilderness, a king with no throne, a man after God's own heart with no place to lay his head. And yet this was right where God wanted him to be. You see, God was going to use this trial and this suffering in David's life to continue to refine David. Ultimately, David's suffering will bring more glory to God. Now, as we study chapter 17 in today's message, we're going to answer questions like, what does the Bible have to say about suicide? What is the unforgivable sin? Why does life have to be so hard? And what does God want to do with your life and with my life? And so with that, let's jump in in 2 Samuel chapter 17 In verses 1 through 14, we read about the advice of two counselors. Verse 1 says, Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, Now let me choose 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and weak and make him afraid, and all the people who are with him will flee. And I will strike only the king. Then I will bring back all the people to you. When all return, except for the man whom you seek, all the people will be at peace. And the saying pleased Absalom and all the elders of Israel. Now Ahithophel was David's trusted friend and counselor. But he's betrayed David and he's joined with Absalom's rebellion. And the last verse of the previous chapter told us, chapter 16, verse 23, now the advice of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, was as if one had inquired at the oracle of God. So was all the advice of Ahithophel, both with David and with Absalom. In other words, this guy had a gift. He was so wise and his tactics and his schemes, they were so helpful in battle. It was as if God was giving it directly to him. And here, he continues to give Absalom some wise advice. Now, notice that verse 1 starts with the word, moreover. That's because this chapter is a continuation of the last chapter. You see, when the Bible was first written, there were no chapters or verses marked in the Scripture. And so this passage in 2 Samuel would look something like this in English, kind of a big block of text, kind of hard to to decipher it and read through. It wasn't until the 13th century 
that chapter divisions were added. And a few hundred years after that, they finally added verse markings. Now, the chapter and verse markings are really helpful. It's a lot easier for me to tell you, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 17 because of those markings. But the chapter and verse divisions, they're not always in the best place. And so I want to remind us to always read the context of the passage we're studying. Read the verses before and after the verse we're studying because we'll have a better and more accurate understanding of God's word. So last week, chapter 16 ended with Absalom taking Ahithophel's first advice. His first advice was this, Absalom, your dad's run out into the wilderness. You've got control of the palace. Absalom, you should go in and you should rape his 10 concubines that he left behind. You'll be the new man of the palace. It was evil and it was wicked. But Ahithophel knew If Absalom does this, there's no turning back. And so Absalom, he took that advice, and he did that evil deed. Now, remember, it was only a few chapters ago that Absalom was outraged when his sister, Tamar, was raped. And he was so outraged that he took the man who raped her, and he murdered him. That's how angry he was. And yet now, some 10 years later, Absalom rapes these 10 concubines. He becomes guilty of the same sin. And to me, this is a big warning. Your first fill in the blank today. It says, the longer you run from God, the more likely you are to commit sins that were previously unthinkable. It's related to the idea of hardening your heart or of searing your conscience. You see, the more often you tell God no, the less you feel bad about it. And the more often you tell God no, the more God will give you over into your sin and darkness. This week in your life group homework, we're going to look at Romans chapter 1 and kind of dig a little deeper into this idea of as we rebel against God, God gives us over into that rebellion and our darkness grows even darker. But for now, Let's look back at our text in chapter 17. Ahithophel already gave part one of his advice. Rape the ten concubines. Now chapter 17 starts with the second part of his advice. And he says, Absalom, your father is on the run and he's disorganized. He's fearful. Let me take some troops and pursue him tonight. Let's hit him before he regains his balance. Ahithophel says, I will lead the troops. We'll kill the king and we'll spare all the people. And then we'll all come back and we'll all serve you, our new king. It was good advice. Ahithophel and Absalom, they didn't know this, but David, he wasn't yet out of reach. He was only just outside of town awaiting news from his secret agents that he'd left in Jerusalem. He wasn't yet hiding or out of reach. It was clever advice, and it probably would have worked. However, look at verse 5. Then Absalom said, Now call Hushai the archite also, and let us hear what he says too. This man Hushai was also an advisor or counselor, but he was secretly still loyal to David. David sent Hushai to go and pretend, Hey, Absalom, I'm here to serve you. 
but actually he was there to give bad advice, to try to combat the good advice and wise advice of Ahithophel. And so verse 6, And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom spoke to him, saying, Ahithophel has spoken in this manner. Shall we do as he says? If not, speak up. So Hushai said to Absalom, The advice that Ahithophel has given is not good at this time. For, said Hushai, you know your father and his men, that they are mighty men, and they are enraged in their minds, like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. And your father is a man of war and will not camp with the people. Surely by now David is hidden in some pit or in some other place. And it will be when some of them are overthrown at the first that whoever hears it will say, There's a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. And even he who is valiant, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, will melt completely. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man, and those who are with him are valiant men. So first, Hushai explains why Absalom should wait and not attack David right away. He says, here's your first problem. David is probably long gone, and he's hidden by now. He'll be hard to find and hard to get to. And here's your second problem. These aren't ordinary soldiers that are coming alongside David that we're going to fight against, but these are warriors. These are David's mighty men. In fact, in a few weeks, we're going to read about some of these mighty men in 2 Samuel chapter 23. Let's look at just one of them. 2 Samuel 23 verse 8, it says, these are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Josheb Bashabeth, the Tachmanite, chief among the captains. He was called Adino the Esnite because he had killed 800 men at one time. So the leader of David's mighty men, he killed 800 guys in one battle. And Hushai says, remember who we're fighting against. Even with 12,000, we need a lot more guys. They're going to be a hard nut to crack. And so Hushai says, these are the guys that you've provoked and they're only going to be extra fierce because of how angry they are. Then Hushai adds another fearful thought into Absalom's mind. He says, it's just a given fact that our first wave of attack against them is going to be a suicide mission. Our first wave of soldiers, they're going to be destroyed. And when that happens, David's men are going to cry out the victory cry. And even our bravest soldiers, their hearts are going to melt like wax. So just know you need way more than 12,000 men to do this. We're going to take heavy losses. And so after convincing Absalom that Ahithophel's advice is foolish, he then continues in verse 11. And Hushai says, Therefore, I advise that all Israel be fully gathered to you, from Dan to Beersheba, like the sand that is by the sea for multitude, and that you go to battle in person. So we will come upon him in some place where he may be found, and we will fall on him as the dew falls on the ground. And of him and all the men who are with him, there shall not be so much as one. We're going to kill them all. 
Moreover, if David has withdrawn into a city, then all Israel shall bring ropes to that city, and we will pull it into the river until there is not one small stone found there. This is Hushai's advice. He says, we're going to get the biggest army possible, every single man, and we're going to destroy them, not just David, but every single person that's with him. They're all traitors. We're going to kill them all. Then he said, notice, he uses these descriptive terms. David's like a bear robbed of her cubs. Therefore, our army should be like the sand that is by the sea, and we will fall on them as the dew falls on the ground. And as he paints these vivid pictures in Absalom's mind, notice what tips the scales. Earlier, Ahithophel recommended that he, Ahithophel, lead the small, immediate attack on David. We'll get him tonight. We'll attack him right now. But Hushai, he says, Absalom, you're going to lead us. And you can just imagine Absalom's chest kind of puffs up. He's like, yes, I will lead the men. I will do it. Think about what we know about Absalom. Remember back in 2 Samuel chapter 14, verse 25, it says, Now in Israel, in all Israel, there was no one who was praised as much as Absalom for his good looks. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. Not to mention that his hair was so thick that his annual haircut produced five pounds of hair. The teenage girls in Israel, they probably had posters of Absalom in their rooms. They idolized this guy. But not just for his looks, it was also for his political promises. Remember, he sat by the gate and he told them, tell me, what is your problem? Mm, I'm sorry about that. If only the king were able to hear you. If I were king, then I could help solve you because, of course, I'm on your side. You're right. If only I was in charge. And so with all of this, Absalom has won the hearts of the people. And now Hushai tells him, you don't want Ahithophel to lead the troops and take your glory. You should lead the troops yourself. And I think this hit home. Perhaps Absalom is thinking back to what's now the classic song that they used to sing in Israel. Saul has slain his thousands and David is ten thousands. And perhaps Absalom is thinking, I wonder what songs are going to write about me. David killed Goliath and they praised him. But if I kill David and his mighty men, I'll be even better than they. It's his pride all being puffed up. And so, verse 14, Absalom and all the men of Israel, they said, well, the advice of Hushai the archite is better than the advice of Ahithophel. They liked his advice better. Ahithophel's goal was to strike hard and strike fast, kill only David, and then, Absalom, you can reign in peace. We only need to have one murder. It's David's. That's it. But Hushai says, I'll give you more than peace. I'll give you revenge. I'll give you glory. I'll give you a name for yourself. And so verse 14 continues and says, For the Lord had purposed to defeat the good advice of Ahithophel, to the intent that the Lord might bring disaster on Absalom. This clarifies why Absalom liked Hushai's advice better. 
It wasn't just that it spoke to his pride. It wasn't just that he thought this was better advice. It was because God purposed to bring disaster on Absalom. In other words, God is sovereign. That means that he is in control of all things at all times. He is ultimately in control. Now remember back in 2 Samuel chapter 15 in verse 31. It says, Then someone told David, saying, Ahithophel, your good friend, your counselor, he is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, I pray, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. That was David's prayer. God, usually Ahithophel's advice is so good, it's like godly advice. It's like it's from you. But I pray that you would turn that advice into foolishness. Now I ask you, Is that what God did? I would say no. Ahithophel's advice was still good. But what God did do is he used Hushai to give an alternative. And Absalom went with that. You see, David prayed one specific thing. Make Ahithophel's advice dumb. Well, Ahithophel's advice probably would have worked. But Absalom didn't listen to it. God made Absalom dumb instead. And so God still answered David's prayer, but not in the way that he expected. And I think that's a good reminder for you and me. Not only is God in control, but sometimes God answers our prayers differently than we expect. God often works in unexpected ways. And if you ever feel like you're lost or confused in what God is doing in your life, join the club. That's okay. You're not alone to feel that way. We're not supposed to fully understand what God's will and purpose are ahead of time. We don't always know those details. But we can rest in Romans chapter 11, verse 33, where it says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. You see, you and I are wise to pray and to ask God for his help, but we're wiser still to trust that his answer is best, even when it's not the answer we expected, even when the circumstances aren't turning out the way that we wanted them to, to know, God, you are sovereign, so I know you're in control. I know you're not up there wringing your hands just thinking, man, I blew it. God's never thinking that because he never does that. He's in control. So God, I trust that you must have something better and bigger in store. God, you're going to do something good for your glory and for your kingdom and for your name. And we ought to be a church that says, I'm okay with that, Lord. In verses 15 through 29 now, we read about provision in the wilderness. Verse 15, it says, Then Hushai said to Zadok and Abiathar, the priests. Thus and so Ahithophel advised Absalom and the elders of Israel, and thus and so I have advised. Now therefore, send quickly and tell David, saying, Do not spend this night in the plains of the wilderness, but speedily cross over, lest the king and all the people who are with him be swallowed So remember, Hushai is a spy for David, and the priests here are also on David's side. And so he's passing a message to them to get word out to David. 
and say, hey, just in case Absalom changes his mind and he goes back to Ahithophel's advice, get out of here. Go tonight. You need to leave. Now, look at verse 17. Now, Jonathan and Ahimeaz stayed at En-Rogel. These are the two sons of the priests, and these were the messengers ready to carry this message to David. And so verse 17 continues. It says, For these two men, they dared not be seen coming into the city. So a female servant would come and tell them, and they would go and tell King David. Nevertheless, a lad saw them and told Absalom. But both of them went away quickly and came to a man's house in Bahurim, who had a well in his court. And they went down into the well. Then the woman took and spread a covering over the well's mouth and spread ground grain on it. And the thing was not known. And when Absalom's servants came to the woman at the house, they said, Where are Ahimeaz and Jonathan? So the woman said to them, Well, they have gone over the water brook. And when they had searched and could not find them, they returned to Jerusalem. Now, verse 21, it came to pass after they had departed that they came up out of the well and went and told King David and said to David, Arise, cross over the water quickly, for thus has Ahithophel advised against you. So David and all the people who were with him arose and crossed over the Jordan. By morning light, not one of them was left who had not gone over the Jordan. The Jordan's the big river there. Notice that these two messengers, they faced a terrifying flight for their life as they sought to bring this news to David. And also notice that David and all the people who were with him, they all packed up and they fled deeper into the wilderness in the middle of the night. This would have been a very scary and dark and stressful time for all of those who were with David. Now look at verse 23. Now when Ahithophel saw that his advice was not followed. He saddled a donkey and, he, and arose and went home to his house, to his city. Then he put his household in order and hanged himself and died. And he was buried in his father's tomb. It seems that once Ahithophel saw that his advice was not going to be followed, that he knew this isn't going to work. Suddenly he knew, I'm fighting against God. Suddenly he realizes that the real king, David, is going to come back from the wilderness. And David is the one that I've betrayed. I have no hope. I have no future. How tragic that he believed those lies, that he had no hope and he had no future. And yet he still had the foresight to set his affairs, to set his household in order before taking his life. It's tragic. Maybe you're here today and you've been struggling with thoughts and desires of hurting yourself. Maybe even thoughts of taking your own life. Maybe you, like Ahithophel, feel like there's just no hope. I want you to know that Jesus loves you. And that no matter how dark or desperate you feel in your heart, in your mind, in your life, there's nothing too dark and desperate for Jesus to come alongside you in and to rescue you out of. 
I want you to know that we as a church, we want you here. And we want to come alongside you to support you and to love you. And so if that's you, I invite you, tell us. Tell somebody what you're struggling with because you're not alone even though you feel alone. I also want to recommend an excellent website called stayhere.live. It's a Christian suicide prevention ministry. They offer a live chat to talk with somebody if you're struggling with suicidal thoughts. They also offer a free online training to help equip us to better recognize the, the signs of somebody who's struggling with suicidal thoughts or hurting themselves. I've taken the training. It's great. It's well done, and they are believers, and they use Jesus. So I encourage you to check out that website. Now, while we're on the topic of suicide, I want to be clear that suicide is a sin. It's self-murder. Therefore, it is never God's will. God never wants you to take your own life. But I also want to be clear that suicide is not an unforgivable sin. See, suicide happens when somebody believes the lies of Satan. And in that moment of temptation, they give in. That just proves that they're a sinner, just like you and just like me. Sometimes even Christians commit suicide, and it's tragic. But their sin doesn't change the fact that they are saved by grace. They go to heaven because they believed in Jesus, and he declared them righteous, and he still declares them righteous. Jesus says in John chapter 3, verse 36, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Therefore, the only sin that is unforgivable is the sin of not believing in Jesus. You see, when you reject Jesus as your Savior, it means you're rejecting the testimony of the Holy Spirit. The Bible calls that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Thankfully, this sin is only unforgivable while it is still being committed. In other words, all you have to do is believe in Jesus, and you'll no longer be unforgivable. You see, there are only two kinds of people in the world. There are those who believe in Jesus and are therefore forgiven. And there are those who do not believe in Jesus and are therefore unforgivable. There are people who have given into murder on both sides. There are people who have given into homosexuality on both sides. There are people who have given into suicide on both sides. Jesus is the only thing that separates one from the other. And so, if you are on the side of not believing in Jesus, you need to believe in Jesus because he's your only hope. Don't worry about your other sins. Don't worry about the things that you have done, the things that you regret, the things that you feel enslaved to. Don't worry about that. Believe in Jesus. Trust in him. And then you will no longer be unforgivable. If you've already believed in Jesus, then draw near to him. And let Jesus continue to change your heart and to make your heart more and more like him. Now in verse 24, it says, Then David went to Mahanaim, and Absalom crossed over the Jordan, he and all the men of Israel with him. 
And Absalom made Amasa captain of the army instead of Joab. This Amasa was the son of a man whose name was Jithra, an Israelite, who had gone into Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, sister of Zeruiah, Joab's mother. So Israel and Absalom encamped in the land of Gilead. So Absalom and his army, they're pursuing David. Absalom makes this guy Amasa captain of his army. He happens to be the cousin of Joab, once removed. Joab's the captain of David's army. And it says David is in the city of Mahanaim. You can see it there on the map. And Absalom is in the region called Gilead, that mountainous region there. And so as you can see, Absalom is closing in on David. This sets the stage for the battle that occurs in the next chapter. But before we get there, we read in verse 27. Now it happened, when David had come to Mahanaim, that Shobai, the son of Nahash, from Rabbah, of the people of Ammon, Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar, and Barzillai, the Gileadite, from Rogalim, brought beds and basins, earthen vessels and wheat, barley and flour, parched grain and beans, lentils and parched seeds, honey and curds, sheep and cheese of the herd, for David and the people who were with him to eat. For they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. These men each came from three neighboring cities and they provided for David and the people who were with him. And I want to highlight the fact that David and the people were not just chased out into Jerusalem and they're camping in the wilderness, but they were hungry and weary and thirsty. In fact, David didn't even know if he would survive. We read in 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 25, where David said, Carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and show me both the ark and his dwelling place. But if God says thus, I have no delight in you, David, then David says, here I am. Let God do to me as seems good to him. David was surrendered, and part of that was because he just didn't know what God was going to do. He didn't know how it was going to turn out. Now, obviously, part of David's suffering is because of his sin with Bathsheba, right? It's the fulfillment of what God said would happen. God said that he would raise up adversity against David from within his own house. That's what we're reading about. Absalom, his own son, who was raised up against him. And so sometimes our suffering is self-inflicted. It's the consequence of our own sin. And last week, we talked about how God uses those consequences to chasten us and to correct us because he loves us. But what about all the people who are with David? What about all the other people who, they didn't commit adultery with Bathsheba. They didn't murder her husband. But yet they were also hungry and weary. They were also thirsty and homeless. They had become refugees overnight. Was this their reward for following their king into the wilderness? What about the priest's sons, who as they tried to carry this secret message out to David, they were fleeing for their lives, and they had to hide in the well, fearing that they might be discovered. Why couldn't God have made it easier on them? Why couldn't God have made it less scary? 
less difficult, less needy. In other words, why does life have to be so hard? Why does God allow stressful situations or financial hardship or hunger? Why does God allow sickness or disease or death? Why does God allow people like Shimei who throw rocks and curse David as he's fleeing? Or why does God allow seasons in the wilderness? Well, one reason is because we live in a fallen world among fallen people. We live in a fallen world among fallen people. You see, God created the world and he saw that it was good. It was good. And yet when sin entered the world, creation fell from its original goodness. Natural disasters and diseases and death, they all remind us that this is not God's original design or plan. Paul poetically describes this in Romans chapter 8, verse 22 in the NIV translation. It says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. All creation is groaning because it's fallen, because we're fallen, and we're longing for God to restore His creation so that we're no longer in that fallen state. Everything around us has been affected by the fall of man. But not only is the world fallen, but you and I are fallen. Hatred and theft and wars remind us that we have the freedom to choose God or to choose sin. And when we choose sin, it affects other people. It hurts others. Another reason life is so hard is because this life is not the end. This life is not the end. Therefore, the goal of this life is not to enjoy it. The goal of this life is not to enjoy life, but the goal of this life is to enjoy God. We get a glimpse of what heaven will be like in Revelation chapter 22, verses 3 and 4. It says, And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him, and they shall see His face, and His name shall be on their foreheads. Imagine that. No more curse. The curse of sin will be gone. It will be called the former things of which have passed away. Creation will no longer be fallen. Mankind will no longer be fallen. We will all be made new. And we will live forever with God in the presence of God where we will enjoy Him forever. One of the greatest temptations for Western Christianity and I'm speaking to myself included here, is that we comfort our God. We tend to make comfort our God. I think God allows hardship so that we make God our comfort. You see, we want life to be easy. We want life to be full of pleasure. We want life to be satisfying. And therefore, we are tempted to live for comfort. In other words, Live for the flesh, to live for ourselves. But that's not what God created us for. Your next fill in the blank, God doesn't exist for our pleasure. We were created for His. Therefore, we need to regularly pray a prayer of surrender. A prayer 
that says, God, would you help me to live for you and for your glory rather than to live for myself and for my name and for my glory and for my flesh and for my kingdom? I don't want to live for my comfort. I want to live for you, Jesus. That's what Jesus meant in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. It says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. It's the idea of dying to self. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, For the love of Christ compels us. Because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he, Jesus, died for all. That those who live, that's you and me, those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. The fact is, life is hard. Becoming a Christian doesn't change that. Sometimes we may feel like we're in the wilderness and we're tired and we're hungry and we're scared. We feel like we're following a king who's not quite on the throne yet. He's not taken his authority yet. Don't follow Jesus in hopes that life will become easier or more comfortable. Don't follow Jesus in hopes of what he might do for you. Follow Jesus because of what he already did for you on the cross. Follow Jesus because he gave his life for you to rescue you from hell, to give you eternal life. And so, have you been making excuses for your sin? Have you been hiding your sin? Repent. Have you been living for yourself instead of living for God? Repent. Have you been chasing after comfort, striving to maintain control, or craving an easier life? Then chase after Jesus instead. Strive to know him and to glorify him and to enjoy him more. Pray that you would crave Jesus more than anything else that this world can offer. Have you been longing for understanding or for an explanation in your hardship? It's the big question, why God? I encourage you, surrender it to God. You see, we're not promised explanations. We're not often given the answer to our why questions. But we do know that God is in control. We know that he is good. We know that he knows our suffering. He knows the depths of our heart. And that he himself has gone before you to suffer on the cross. We serve a God who has himself suffered and endured pain and loss and tragedy. And we know that one day, Jesus will invite you into heaven to live with him forever and ever. And so today, I invite you to repent of your sin, to follow after Jesus, to surrender your life to him, whether for the very first time or all over again, to recognize that this life is not about me. It's about Jesus. And I want to stop living for me.
and I want to look to him. Live your life enduring the hardships for the sake of the one who gave it all for you, for the sake of the one who endured the cross. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so grateful for your love. God, your love is not simply communicated to us through words, but God, you proved your love for us when you came down and you lived a perfect life without sin. And then, Lord, you died a criminal's death on the cross, taking our sin upon yourself, paying the debt that we could never repay. God, I thank you that because of your work on the cross and your resurrection from the dead, you offer salvation, freedom from sin, a ticket out of hell into heaven. God, you offer that for anyone and everyone who will believe in you. God, I pray for those who have not yet made that decision, and I pray that right now your Holy Spirit would speak to their heart and just tell them today. Today is the day to go all in for Jesus, not just nominally calling yourself a Christian, but laying down your heart and saying, I'm yours. Lord, for anybody here today or listening online who they've believed in you, they are a Christian, but man, they have been living for the wrong things. God, we ask, would you help us? God, would you give us wisdom and humility to recognize the areas of our life that we have been protecting and shading from you because we're being selfish? And God, may we lay it out before you and say, Lord, it's all yours. I surrender it all to you. God, would you take my life? Would you give me the strength that I need to live it for your name and for your glory and for your kingdom? God, we look forward to that day where your kingdom will come and you will declare to make all things right. You will welcome us into your kingdom, not because we were good enough, but because you we're good, and you gave us eternal life freely. God, would you fill your church today? Fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit. God, would you purify our hearts? And may it all be for your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.